So uh, this evening, it's, it's great to get this opportunity to round off the series. Uh, as I mentioned already, we're on to 3 John this evening. Um, this is interesting in that it's the shortest book of the entire Bible, just 219 words. Um, so short, in fact, that I can fit it all onto one slide up there. That's the whole thing. You're not going to be able to read it uh, quite, so, so do find it um, right towards the back of your Bibles. Uh, but there it is. So, uh, Also, you don't need to ask me which chapter we're going to be working from tonight because there's just one. Uh, so with 219 words to work with, uh, when initially approaching this task, my thoughts instantly went to panic and how difficult this would be that... I've only got 219 words to search through and find something that I can share with you tonight. Uh, my mind instantly thought, perhaps as it's the last one in this series of John, I'll just do a lot of recapping on what we've done already and sum things up. Um, but as I read this letter slowly and carefully, I realized just how packed it was with truth. And as I began to delve, my thoughts started swinging the other way. Uh, and I started thinking, how on earth am I going to fit this all in under 30 minutes? Uh, well, I've given it my best shot, and we'll see how we get on. Uh, but with the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, I'm sure it will be well. So let's read together then. It's uh, the book of 3 John, John's third letter in the Bible. Uh, it perhaps bears repeating that this is the same John, uh, almost certainly, uh, who wrote the Gospel, uh, and that Whereas the other letters we've read so far in 1 John and 2 John uh, were wrote to, uh, written to churches, this one is a personal letter to John's friend Gaius. Uh, so let's see what we can find, uh, see what truth we can uncover as we read. So 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come... I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, 
but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Amen. A short letter, as I said, but it is packed with truth. Uh, ready, really, for us to unpack. So for the most part tonight, we're going to work through this uh, verse or two at a time, and then, of course, we'll wrap things up at the end. So let's look for truth in 3 John, starting with that opening sentence. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The elder here is John. But the interesting bit here is at the end of the sentence, whom I love in truth. Uh, I'm sure that when uh, Tom, our minister in, uh, in training, was sectioning up these letters as he was preparing this, uh, this sermon series, and when he came up with the title phrase, walking in love and truth, he must have been very happy with this particular verse, seeing those two words so close together. But I do believe it shows the importance of the combination of these words, and it highlights why Tom decided to call this series, uh, well, decided not to call this series just walking in love. John says here to Gaius, I love you, but not just that. I love you in truth, in the truth which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul in his letters likes to get flowery with his greetings to go all out, but John keeps it very simple and to the point. But why? Well, this letter isn't sent out to a vast church, to uh, people he didn't know very well. This is sent to a friend who will know exactly what he means. He means to say, I love you in the same way in which Christ loves us. The truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I love you. He moves on to say, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be uh, in good health as it goes well with your soul. What sounds like a simple greeting, but with that beautiful extra addition, as it goes well with your soul. What we perhaps sometimes forget is that John and the other New Testament writers uh, probably didn't know uh, what was going to be happening to these letters 2,000 years on. Uh, probably didn't know that they would be part of the Bible and, and we'd be sat here today thousands of miles from where they were written uh, reading them and talking about them. But God used them in their circumstance to produce his word. But for them, often, they were just writing to a friend, especially in a letter like this, short, to the point, almost like a first century email, if you will. A quick check-in, update, and see you soon. But we notice that even so, his language is littered with the word of God. Uh, to the gospel and to a particular worldview. He doesn't just say, hope you're well. He adds, I hope your soul is well too. When was the last time you asked somebody else that? I had a good think and I could perhaps count uh, the number of times I've done that on my two hands, uh, asking people how they are spiritually. But when we think about it, surely it is the most important thing in our lives how our spirit is and we should be asking each other about it and often if we care for each other's bodies but not each other's souls it's like a church building if you put all the money into how the building looks from the outside 
and onto the appearance and structure, but don't spend any money or time on the people inside that church, that church will die. And in the same way, if you care for somebody's body, but not for their soul, they will surely die without the chance of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So I believe this is just John speaking naturally to a friend. He speaks here from a renewed mind, which Paul talks about in Romans 12. His whole life is transformed by having this renewed mind in Christ Jesus. And that has filtered right down to the very way he greets his friends. We've heard from almost every, other, uh, every single other person who has uh, preached on these letters of John uh, during this series about how he tells us that we will be known by our works, that if we are indeed followers of Christ, that our lives will show that. And I think John's life shows that here. A short message to a friend, but from his renewed mind, he asks after Gaius' bodily and spiritual health. And I want you to take a moment this evening, uh, perhaps when you get home, to think about your renewed mind. Is it truly renewed? Are you showing outwardly what you believe inwardly? Is Jesus on your tongue at all times? If the answer is no to any of those questions, then think on how you can change that. I know I will be. So on to the last part of John's greeting, where he says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Isn't that beautiful? This idea that Paul often uses too, the idea of seeing your mentees as your children in Christ. Paul talks about Onesimus in his letter to Philemon, saying how he has fathered him, so to speak, during his stay in jail. What a beautiful idea that the older generation would take the younger generation under their wing and disciple them in Christ and care for them as children in the Spirit. Church, this is something that we are just not good enough at. We are called to make disciples of all people. But we often seem to interpret that as to make followers of all people, not disciples. Jesus didn't call the fishermen and tax collectors and Roman soldiers to him and then just have them follow him round and talk about the weather and the latest scores at the Colosseum. He taught them scripture. He taught them stories. He taught them how to be disciples. Ultimately, so he could send them off into the world to do the same for others. In the same way, our relationships with our brothers and sisters shouldn't just be based on conversations about Wimbledon and the Open, about Love Island or Coronation Street, or even about if we're over that cold we had. We should be expecting to have the same relationships in our church between seasoned believers and newcomers to the faith as Christ had with his disciples. We should be taking every opportunity to share scripture with them, tell them stories of what Jesus has done for us, pray together. I know there are people here who do disciple others, I'm sure, but it should be every one of us. Because if we don't take time to disciple our children in the faith, 
they will forever stay children in the faith. I've seen it happen at other churches where people spend their entire life just skimming the surface of knowledge of Christ and the Bible, feeling content with that, with moralism and just knowing a few stories. But we should not be okay with that. We should be challenging our children in the faith to grow. And then ultimately they can pass that knowledge on. John saw these people he had taught, now at Gaius' church, as his children. And he was delighted to know that they were walking in the truth. I'm starting to understand now just how massive it is to send your child out into the world. Uh, You see, I have an eight-month-old boy at home who's probably just going down for uh, his sleep now. Uh, But the idea of sending him, Ezra, uh, off to, even to nursery, is terrifying. And... uh, something I'm going to be struggling with for a while. Um, and I'm sure when John sent out his, uh, his sons and daughters in the faith to these other churches that he felt exactly the same way. I've always liked to think about Psalm 127 in relation to this. That uh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Uh, And I love a a modern-day interpretation of this by an American preacher, Vody Balcom, who says that your children are like intercontinental ballistic missiles, ready to send off into the world with the word of God on their lips. Well, John equipped and trained his children in Christ and then was prepared to send them out into the world to further the advance of the gospel. And that should be our mission too. Build people up in the word and then send them out to share it. In the next verse, John backs up this point as he says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. It's a faithful thing you do. And it's faithful because it's for the advancement of the gospel. John is saying, I gave you my time and my effort to teach you the gospel. I sent you out to share that with others. And now you're doing the same in sending these strangers back to me to share your testimony. It's like when we have people here at church who become Christians, perhaps through the Alpha course, and then they invite their friends along to next year's Alpha or bring them along to church on a Sunday. What an amazing feeling that must be for John to actually see his own love, which he shared with Gaius, coming back now to bless him. John continues, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that may be fellow workers for the truth. as well as being grateful for the love that they bring. Uh, He also reminds Gaius to look after them. It's easy for missionaries to be out of sight and out of mind. We know of people uh, in the Baptist family and from this very church who've gone across the world to share the good news uh, and to bless people. North Korea, India, Mozambique, Uganda, Northern Ireland and many other places. Once they're out there, it's easy to just carry on with our lives and 
forget about theirs. But they're living in those realities every single day, facing struggles and opposition. It's easily done on our part, and that's why John gives Gaius this reminder, to properly equip them for the journey ahead. And so should we equip our brothers and sisters in prayer, monetarily, and by any other means we can, where appropriate, to make sure our brothers and sisters know that they don't go out alone, but rather with hundreds of people behind them, backing them all the way, praying for them and those they go to see. So what do we see from the first part of this letter? Well, we get a great insight into the lives of these churches led by John and by Gaius, of the relationship that existed between them. They weren't distant spiritually because they were distant geographically. They weren't squabbling about petty things. They weren't quick to moan. But what they were was a church united in love. Love defined by the gospel. Love for each other's bodies and souls. Love like you only find in family between father and son, mother and daughter. Love that puts Christ and the advancement of the gospel first. Love that is shared freely and not hoarded. Love that is genuine, that lasts even when people are not with us physically. So we can learn from these churches mentioned in this letter to be churches in a loving relationship together as whole churches and as individuals within those churches. And one thing that is key to that is fellowship together. And perhaps it is so fitting that we have, uh, we have you guys joining us from uh, other churches today uh, in regard to this. Because we hear in verses 3 and 12 that for John and Gaius, this meant collecting testimonies from all the churches at that time in Asia Minor and sharing them together. Uh, verse 3 there says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And verse 12 says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. They knew the power of sharing testimony within the church to build us up and to give us hope John says he rejoiced greatly on hearing the testimonies from the people Gaius had sent. These are stories of truth, of the truth, and how that truth has impacted on people's lives. Um, our minister here, Andrew, is currently on sabbatical, and uh, recently, as part of that, I went up with him to Manchester to, hear, uh, well, to visit some churches uh, and to go to a conference up there we heard some staggering testimonies while we were there. Uh, I won't go fully into them now, but as an overview, uh, we met one man who used to walk around the abandoned dockyards in Salford, praying for the city and its regeneration. And what now sits there, where he used to wander around, is Media City UK, home of the BBC, ITV, high-rise apartments, shopping malls, and opportunity galore for local people. We met another man who was heavily involved in organized crime, selling drugs and weapons, being paid to intimidate and uh, hurt other people. But God shone his light into this man's darkness 
And now he runs a church of 600 people, especially serving those with addiction issues. But it goes the other way too. As well as being able to share positive stories, it's so important that we can share the tough times as well. Uh, at the, the conference that Andrew and I went to on that same trip, we met with leaders of other action groups around the country and we heard some wonderful stories again of real transformation happening within communities. But we also heard of real struggle and hardship, opposition and apathy. And that was actually fantastic for us to hear because it helped us to know we weren't alone. Sharing stories together, both good and bad, can help us feel more united as a church across cities and even across countries. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, to get more involved in Christians Together here in Canterbury and, and where you are as well. And uh, we always make sure we advertise those events so, um, so there's no excuses for those of you who are members here. Um, but I urge you as well to pop into events at other churches, sort of like you guys have done today as well. And uh, this, It's not a contest about... Uh, how many people we have sitting here on a Sunday morning or evening and how that compares to the other big churches in the area. We're all fighting towards the same goal, to bring people to Christ. So let people from other churches know that we're in this together and you'll doubtless learn something or be shown something by God too. So that's the first point to take from this letter of John. Have the same renewed mind as he did. And live out your faith in the way you join with and support other churches and other Christians. Show the love of Christ in those relationships. Now, to move on. The next verse, next verses, take a sharp left turn. Like Max Verstappen being tailed by Sebastian Vettel, we're about to go for a spin. John has just finished this glowing report, but it's not all good news. Because in verse, verses 9 and 10, he says, I've written to something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. John spent those first verses doing all he could to build up Gaius and to praise all the little things that he was doing. So for John to now be speaking like this about someone, we know that Diotrephes is someone who has really upset John. So why has he upset him so much? Well, because Diotrephes, as we see, is a false teacher. He has gone away from the word initially shared with him. He is leading a church astray and he's doing it for his own ego. So that, well, that's what was happening nearly 2,000 years ago. But do we see this same problem happening in the church today? Most assuredly, yes. I'm sorry to say. Let's look at the charges against him and there's a lot. He puts himself first. He doesn't recognize higher authority. He talks wicked nonsense against other Christians and churches. He refuses to welcome Christians from other churches. And he even stops people from going out 
on mission to other churches and bans them from his church. Well, putting himself first and not recognizing higher authority, we do not have to look far to find evidence of that in the church today. Several recent news stories have revealed incredible self-indulgence of some pastors. One that sticks in my mind is the story of an American preacher, Jesse Duplantis. Here's what the BBC News article said. A US televangelist has asked his followers to help fund his fourth private jet because Jesus, this is in quotes, wouldn't be riding on a donkey. Jesse Duplantis said God had told him to buy a Falcon 7X for $54 million or 41 million pounds. He added that he was hesitant about the purchase at first, but said God had told him, I didn't ask you to pay for it, I asked you to believe for it. Wow. (laughs) I'm sure, Jeremy, you could use a a private jet or two, that would be quite handy, but (laughs) not quite uh, fitting in with uh, the Bible, so I don't think I need to say much more about that. Uh, The other place we see people putting themselves first, and that mentality is closer to home. Uh, With the rise of the homosexual agenda, which widens and grows every day, some churches have shown what Paul predicted when he said to Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. More and more, people are ready to put the Bible to one side and make up their own truths that suit them better. Phrases we hear like, uh, God will never give you more than you can handle, from second hesitations, or the famous 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. All unbiblical, all untrue. And the number one reason most people do these things is to appease the world, to not offend, to be nice, to have people say how lovely they are. We see so many churches now quick to back down from the truth and to give in to what the world wants in detriment to the truth we know. But we are in a church of which Jesus said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures till the end will be saved. And Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is not a popularity contest. Our goal is not to fill the church through empty words and sayings. Our job is to preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It is to hold fast to the truth which has been given to us, not to put ourselves and our own interests first, as we see from Diotrephes, but to preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Rachel, who preached uh, last time on the letters of John, mentioned that the world now thinks that there is no truth, that it's all relative and subjective, and I agree with that, but I would actually say that we've moved on a step further from that. Uh, And actually this is where the hypocrisy of the world is evident because they say there is no truth, but in fact the world we live in does believe in one single truth and they now vehemently adhere to it 
and persecute anyone who errs from this. This is evident in the the Christian bakers who refused to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding, who were demonized and persecuted for their faith. In the end, thank God, the justice system prevailed and they were acquitted of the discrimination charges against them. We've seen it here with new curriculums looking to teach homosexual relationship education to some of our youngest school children. And we've seen the Muslim parents protesting outside the schools. These parents, again, have been villainized and have had the justice system now fight against their religious beliefs. And then there's the abortion battles raging, particularly in Northern Ireland, but also here, where if you believe that it's wrong to murder an unborn child, you're an evil person who doesn't care for the rights of women. It's clear the world has a single worldview. It has one clear idea of what is right, what is allowed to be said. And you can believe whatever other things you like, but the second you challenge that one worldview, you will be crushed. Brothers and sisters, we have to fight that. We have to fight that because it's our duty to share God's truth, no matter what the cost. And we have to fight that because it's very soon going to be our religious freedoms on the line. I'm sure of it. Diotrephes put himself first in his ministry. He put himself before the truth of God. It's something we see so often today, something explicitly uh, in arrogance sometimes, and sometimes as a side effect of bowing down to the world's ideas and truths. Either way, we must stand against it. John also tells of how Diotrephes is hindering the work of other churches uh, and those trying to share the good news. I've seen that happen in this very city. Uh, Certain churches who perhaps won't sit in the same meetings as others because they disagree on certain issues, rather than seeing the thing that unites us in Christ. Beloved, yes, we have our differences, and yes, you quite possibly chose to come to this church, uh, if you've been coming here for a while, because you felt it was the closest you could find to the truth of Christ. Or I could be wrong, you may have stumbled in here ten years ago, been signed up for Coffee Rotor and not been able to get out since. But even if you see this church as the closest thing to the truth, you can still recognize others who are preaching the truth, even if they differ on some small points. The important thing is that we talk. We discuss these things, exactly as John says he planned to do with Diotrephes. So what is the purpose of mentioning, uh, John mentioning all of this? Is he just bitching and moaning about Diotrephes behind his back? No, of course, there's never a place for that, but... And as I just mentioned, we can see that John is actually planning to meet with Diotrephes and bring those accusations up with him. The purpose of telling Gaius is as a twofold warning. Number one, a warning to be careful of the things Diotrephes is doing, that they don't adversely affect his ministry and his church, uh, especially when sending people uh, to Diotrephes' church. And number two, it's a warning to not become like him. John continues, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate evil good. Whoever does good 
is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Ultimately, this all comes back to one thing. And it's a word that kept coming up in in my mind as I read the letters of John this week and as I listened to the other sermons from the series so far. And that word is law. The law of the Old Testament is what we are all meant to strive for. And John, on so many occasions in his letters, brings up this idea. Live out what you believe and they will know you by your works. And as this idea of law comes up again, John back-references Diotrephes as he says, do not imitate evil. And he tells Gaius not to sink to his level, but to rise above it. It does seem like it would be so easy to get sucked into a war of words with someone like Diotrephes. But that's not what John is asking Gaius to do, but rather to be the bigger man and to show what he believes, to imitate good and not evil. And I believe that He's not just telling him to do good things. Sometimes we can interpret words uh, through a modern lens and the statement like, love thy neighbor becomes, be nice to your neighbor and here, imitate good might become, be nice. It might be nice for me to smile to my next door neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus and maybe even bake them a cake or two. Uh, And who am I kidding? Of course, my wife would bake them a cake or two. but it's not loving for me to see them heading straight to hell because they don't know Jesus and not do all I can to convict them of their sin and their need for Christ. So I believe that John's dichotomy of good and evil he paints here is one of the law. Not just doing nice things for the sake of it, opposed to being mean. And I say that because of what I've seen in his other's letters about our works showing our salvation. So all Gaius has to do, and all we have to do, is follow the law. Simple. I think not. Paul says in Romans, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later on, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ah. Well, things just got a little bit harder. John says, follow the law, do good, show your faith by your works. But we know that Paul says that's pretty much impossible. So how on earth can we do that? Well, there's actually a really simple answer to that. We can't. We cannot please God by our works in the flesh. And we can't choose to follow the law. So what do we do? Where is our hope? Well, if you've ever been to Sunday school, you should know that this is the time where you shout out that favourite answer and say, who is it? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the hope. 
We cannot fill, uh, fulfill the law, but someone else can, and someone else already did. Jesus was and is and will always be the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. But for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We had a debt, a price to pay, and God is a just God. So he couldn't just wipe that away. Somebody had to serve that punishment, and Jesus did. On the cross, he took on the immense weight of our sin on his shoulders. He paid our debt. He righted our wrongs. He found us far away and he brought us near. So now it doesn't matter that we cannot fulfill the law because Jesus fulfilled it on our behalf, became a propitiation for our sins so that our sinfulness was imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to us. The transaction is made. The debt is paid. All I need now do is come to him in repentance and faith. That is how I fulfill the law. Acknowledge that I am a sinner. That I am wicked. Ask him for forgiveness for my sins. And trust in him. Have faith in his works and in his name. That is how I can imitate good, through repentance and faith. As James says, someone will say, you have your faith and I have your works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Our works follow on from our faith. It's that renewed mind again. If we have that through our faith in Jesus, the good works will follow. And that's what John is saying here. Whoever does good is from God. And whoever does evil has not seen God. If you have faith in Christ Jesus as Lord, you will follow the law. If you do not, you cannot. So he says to Gaius, imitate good. Rest in your faith in Jesus and do all you can to uphold the law. For by that outward showing of good works, all will know that you are from God and will praise him. As 219 word catch-up emails go, I think we can agree that this one is pretty special. And that there's a lot to take from it this evening and hopefully throughout this week and beyond the question hanging over this sermon series was how can we walk our daily walk in truth and love well based on what we've heard here in this letter uh, from John to his friend Gaius there's three things we can remember number one we can be a church united in the love of Christ, with which we should love one another. Number two, we can be wary of false teachers and hold fast to the truth God has set before us in the Bible and in the good news of Jesus Christ. And number three, we can repent of our sins and have faith in Jesus as Lord 
so that we can fulfill the law that God has set before us. Imitate good and show the light of Christ to all we meet. These letters are a special treasure trove of the truth and love of God. And we can, and I hope we have, gained a lot by working through them, even if you've just been here for tonight. Know that in the world's eyes, truth changes, but the truth that is our God will never and can never change. And the real blessing is that we only have a glimpse of the fullness of the truth of God's glory here on earth. And we know from Paul that as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. The greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help convict us today. Help us to do more to be united in love within the church. Help us to be always on the lookout and wary of false teachers. Help us to hold fast to the truth you have set before us. And Lord, help us to cling to the knowledge that we can fulfill the law through the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, who came to save us. Lord, we rejoice in knowing that this evening. May you keep it on our hearts and in our minds now and forevermore. Amen.